Good afternoon. It's Friday the 10th of March 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen. Great Welcome to be to with you, Mike. Great to be with you. Okay, let's get straight on. Uh, Rishi Sunak has gone over to Paris. Uh, there he is. This is the image that uh, they put out this morning. Uh, apparently, we're not allowed to see it, Macron's face. Is that him and Macron? It is. Macron is only about five foot six. <laughs> I'm just saying... Uh, maybe it's just the d disposition of where they're standing. Well, Patrick, you must be wrong because he's our great leader. And how can great leader be short of stature? This isn't possible. But anyway, he's over there. Uh, and what are they there to do? They're there to uh, gather in Paris for a summit. Uh, and it's going to talk about fortifying the partnership to tackle shared challenges, including stopping small boats. Um, so you need to have a summit to stop small boats. Uh, you can't just pick up the people that are on the boats uh, using some kind of naval ship because, of course, you have to have a navy in order to do that. Uh, but anyway, what's he planning to do? He's planning to, uh, because he, as we'll see in a second, uh, is admitting that we're spending a billion pounds a year on hotels uh, for migrants coming into this country. Um, so he's planning to give the French 65 million pounds a year in order to get the French to stop them getting into the boats in the first place. Does, do you think Macron will find that uh, a good deal? <laughs> well, I don't know. The, the French just direct theirs into tents uh, in Calais or Paris. So they've got a different system in France. They just say, you go camp over there. Um, but uh, so I don't know. Probably, it'll probably go a lot further, that money well, in France. We'll come back to the migration issue in a second. The main point of this summit isn't really about migration or small boats. That's the headline. Uh, what's really going on is defence and more defence cooperation. Now, of course, uh, what many people in the country don't know is that we entered into a 50-year defence pact with the French in 2010, uh, following the uh, Franco-British Council meetings, which uh, many uh, French and British military personnel attended. That resulted in a summit, and it resulted in a statement uh, or an announcement by uh, David Cameron and Nick Clegg as soon as they became uh, Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, that we were going into a 50-year defence pact with the French. That was followed up with the Franco-British summit in Sandhurst in January 2018, as Theresa May and Macron did the same. Now, what's this actually about? Well, uh, here is a quote from Jean-Claude Juncker, who was president of the European Commission at the time, this is from 2019, saying, Europe needs to move from the current patchwork of bilateral and multilateral military cooperation to gradually increase defence integration. So he was urging European level defence union. Uh, this has not gone away. It's still happening. And I just want to show, give people the impression or remind you all of the uh, patchwork, as he calls it, of bilateral, multilateral military cooperation. So uh, when we look at the types of countries that are involved, France and Germany have an agreement. Uh, the UK and Netherlands have an agreement. Germany and Finland have an agreement. And then we've got, what have we got there? Spain. Uh, and Italy and Poland and Czech Republic. And the UK is the hub of all these bilateral, multilateral agreements. So you know, the notion of Brexit taking us out of the EU and taking us out of this type of uh, military cooperation, and we're not talking about just cooperation, we're talking about joint spending, joint operations. Uh, we're talking about integration in the sense that, that uh, Juncker uh, was talking about. Uh, that is very much part and parcel of this summit. But coming back to the migration issue then for a second, this is what uh, uh, Rishi Sunak had to say. Uh, I think everyone knows that we're spending £5.5 million a day plus on hotels. We'd rather not do that. 
the best way to stop that is to stop people coming in the first place. So he's going over there. The headline is at least to try to convince Macron to stop uh, people leaving France, people that have come into France to stop them leaving France to come to the UK. Uh, why would Macron do that? This is clearly not a, a likely outcome. So this again is window dressing. Um, and again, 5.5 million pounds a day on hotels. We've been asking many times, Patrick, what is this about? Why are they bringing these people into the country or allowing these people to come into the country in the way that they are, particularly because in many cases, it's not families that are coming, but young fighting age men. Uh, and uh, well, we'll just make the point that uh, there's lots of uh, finance available for uh, migrants coming in to, to get education, training. Where's this going? What is this about, in your opinion? Well, firstly, I'm going to say that this plan could temporarily work to, by, by giving France money. It's possible that they could, this could help. I don't think it, it's enough money. It might not be enough money, but this could this could work um, because what what France offers the people who are decamping there and what Britain offers are two very different things. France doesn't have such a high standard of uh, four-star hotels and things like that. So the money could go a lot further, but it also it might start more cooperation on this issue because they can't you can't do this separately. You have to have some uh, coordination on this. I think we can all agree that that's probably the way forward, isn't it? Um, you, you can't do it without cooperating between Britain and France. You've certainly got to get agreement from the French to do it. And, and you, well, you've got to be working really closely on this. So, so let's hope that it works. But what is this really about? We'll put that back up on screen. Student finance for refugees, asylum seekers. So there's reports uh, this week about asylum seekers being offered full ride tuition, you know, free university um, in British universities. And there's some universities that are um, uh, offering these types of financial aid packages. But those aren't on offer for uh, British students. Right. Um, so this is where the controversy begins. And so why are they doing this? And this isn't a new issue. This is not a new issue. After the Iraq War, uh, the, Brit or the British War and the Americans and other uh, European countries, especially British and Americans, were keen on bringing those educated Iraqis to Britain and bringing them to America and to Canada and other NATO countries. Um, and so what they effectively do is they create a fifth column. We've talked about this on the show before. Mm -hmm. And you, get the, it, you create a brain drain because of the war. They've done this with Libya. They've done this with Syria. With Syria, this was a massive issue, especially if anybody who identified as being against the Assad regime immediately, Leeds University, Sheffield University, right. all over the country. And so they're educating them, bring them through the British system. They'll be pro-British, pro-NATO, pro-American by the time they're inculcated through this system. Send them back. And when it comes time to you know reinvade Afghanistan, because it will happen again, mm. the Americans and the British, if, if they have their way, they're going to re have another crack at Afghanistan and another crack at Syria. And so the story goes. So you have the opposition, the future opposition in waiting, already ready, educated, in positions of government in some cases, in corporations, leaders, and then also financially successful because of all the support they've been given. So, so this is part of it. It's about, this is how you manage empire in the 21st century. So in a, f a few minutes, we're going to be talking about Georgia. And the question is, how many of these people end up going into NGOs and civil society organizations and being sent back before any thought of reinvasion, but just get them back in fully financed? 
Yeah, and back in home country working for an NGO because those are, in some countries, those are the biggest employers, international NGOs, UN-affiliated organizations. Certainly that's the case in a country like Lebanon and other you know, former war-torn countries. So Iraq as well is a big NGO presence, especially in Iraqi Kurdistan as well. This is where the West have set up shop uh, for a lot of uh, aid organizations and, and things like that. So that that's absolutely, the NGO issue is huge because that's, the Trojan horse, if you will, Absolutely. Uh, for Western countries. Okay, let's uh, move on then back to Lab League. We talked about this last Friday as well, but uh, here's a, an article published by The Telegraph this week, a couple of days ago. Uh, no one believed the COVID, COVID Wuhan Lab League theory. Then the world changed its tune. Uh, idea that the virus escaped from Chinese city used to be widely dismissed, but is now becoming ever more plausible. I just want to pick a couple of uh, quotes out of this article. First of all, as Matt Hancock's original biography draft show, the world was terrified of upsetting China. What, uh, which journalist can possibly make a statement like that with a straight face? Are we concerned about upsetting China at the moment, Patrick? Or are we actually doing as much to stab China in uh, whichever part of its body we want to stab it at the moment? So this is complete nonsense. All, also, why would we believe anything that's uh, written in Matt Hancock's uh, biography, original draft or not? Uh, that's that's one point. The next thing is this uh, from this article. Only in the U.S. was the possibility of lab leak being seriously considered. I want to just reinforce once again: this is not true. This uh, was this narrative was initially begun by uh, Dr. Yellowcake himself, Sir Richard Dearlove, there uh, he is. and uh, he absolutely has been pushing this for two, over two years now. So he's been pushing uh, a lot of things. Uh, including uh, uh, Russian meddling in the 2016 elections. Right. Well, if, if he's not pushing it, certainly his employees are at Orbis Business Intelligence. Isn't he the boss of Christopher Steele? Uh, certainly was. There certainly was the boss. Yes. So anyway, it's interesting how all these uh, birds of a feather seem to flock together, Mike. Absolutely. So what else have we got on this issue? Well, the lab leak issue, according to some people, blew up uh, last night. So uh, a testimony in Congress, Robert Redfield, he's a former director of the CDC. Um, he's quite well known. He's kind of Mr. Pandemic, as it were. Um, he was sort of writing the position early on, and he, I think he was replaced or he left the organization. So, so he's affiliated with all things pandemic. So he was the he was the precursor to Fauci for the sort of you know the high priest of infectious diseases in America. So he's come out during this uh, statement. So listen closely to what he's saying, and you will see how the narrative is being is now being constructed by the U.S. government, okay? This is not for the Twittersphere anymore. This is the official U.S. government, officially sanctioned state conspiracy theory now, going forward. Watch this exchange, amazing. Given what we know now and looking at all the conversations in February of 2020 and before the release of the paper, do you think that uh, Dr. Fauci used this paper to hide the gain-of-function research created that gain-of-function research created this virus? I can't talk about Fauci's motivation. Do you think that the paper does hide the truth? I think it's an inaccurate paper that basically was part of 
a narrative that they were creating. Remember, this pandemic did not start in January at the seafood market. We now know there was infections all the way back into September. This was a narrative that was decided that they were going to say this came from the wet market and they were going to do everything they could to support it to negate any discussion about the possibility that this came from a laboratory. I got 20 seconds left. Dr. Fauci was affirmatively told in, told in an email that uh, NIAID had a monetary relationship with the Wuhan uh, Institute through uh, EcoHealth Alliance. He, he was told this in January 27th of 2020. Do you think that Dr. Fauci intentionally lied under oath to Senator Paul when he vehemently denied NIH's funding of gain-of-function research? I think there's no doubt that NIH was funding gain-of-function research. Is it likely that American tax dollars funded the gain-of-function research that created this virus? I think it did, not only from NIH, but from the State Department, USAID, and from DOD. I'm out of time. Thank you very much. So there's a lot to unpack in that short clip, Mike. So uh, you tell me what your first impressions are, and I'll tell you what, what I took from that. Well, I, 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 my first impressions are that we are having a very carefully crafted narrative built here. Uh, you know, I mean, well, go ahead. Okay, look, the first thing is notice how the uh, this Hegelian dialectic is being constructed. So you're giving, you the public are being given a choice. Either it was from a wet market and it was a zoonotic uh, transmission from a bat to a pangolin to a person, uh, something along there. And they're identifying that with Fauci. Fauci, of course, is the, uh, the, the, the object of the ire of the public. Everybody hates Fauci. Everyone wants to take Fauci down and for good reason. Uh, trust me, he deserves to go down. However, you see how that's been constructed. Do you choose that argument? Or how about this new one we're presenting you called lab leak, okay? Lab leak, China virus, super virus. So if you noticed, Mike, Trump was all over China virus right. very early on. So clearly Donald Trump and Robert Redfield said, he just said it, we, we know that there were infections back in September. Mm. So when he says we know, they didn't have a standardized PCR test for this back in September, so how does he know? Uh, do they have clinical diagnosis? Probably not, they suspect there might be, but that information would have filtered into the intelligence community and that would have made it into a classified uh, briefing with the, from the DTRA or the DOD. He just said the DOD we're funding this research right. in Wuhan. So the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, intimately involved as we have exposed in previous programs. Weeks, yes. So Robert, Redford, Robert <laughs> Redfield has kind of given the game away a little bit um, on this. So, and so now gain of function is now the official. So Trump probably had a look at that. That's why he was saying China virus. He was probably told about that in September or in the fall. October, and then so when the story broke, he went for China virus, right. and so did Fox News. And then, then Facebook censored it, and so the Twittersphere and the, the intellectual dark web think, oh, because it was being censored at the time, it must be true. But we still have this problem, the case of the missing virus. We still don't have any sort of viable sample, isolated sample from a biological tissue or phlegm or sputum from patient zero in Wuhan that's shown to be infectious. Mm. That still has never been produced. Only a genomic sequence, which was created on the computer by who? The Chinese CDC. So we took the Chinese CDC's word for it. We found a novel SARS-CoV-2 virus, and the rest of the world took that and ran with that. And they, they, they directed a, a Christian Drosten to come up with a PCR assay from Charity Institute in Germany, and that was peer-reviewed and confirmed 
to be peer-reviewed in less than 24 hours. Normally it takes eight months. So they just didn't have time to uh, check it. So anyway, uh, so, so she's saying gain of function research that created the virus. Do you see how they slipped that in? And Robert, Red, Robert Redfield said, yes, yes it was, and et cetera. So gain of function research that created the virus. They, don't, they haven't pr presented any evidence that a virus was created or even leapt to, in, from the BSL-4 Institute of Virology in Wuhan into the public. They, they, that part's missing. All we have is research, Fauci emails, and funding by the NIH, via EcoHealth Alliance, to Wuhan, okay? Which is evidence of just funding and is evidence of research, but we're still missing the important part, which is the super virus. Where's the evidence of the super virus? Can anybody show us? So this is the problem. So this story is totally blown up. And here's uh, Denny Rancourt. We'll go to some of the debates on Twitter. So Robert Malone came out and said, this is just completely blowing up the narrative. He's talking about the, the Fauci zoonotic wet market narrative. And so Denny Rancourt from Canada, who's an impressive academic, uh, his work in so many different areas is incredible. He's saying, is Malone an idiot? Uh, this, this does the opposite of blowing up the narrative. This propaganda cements the narrative of a deadly pathogen while falsely blaming China for a Pentagon CIA operation. Mm. We just showed you, it's a D, this, the DOD has been front running all aspects of this from beginning to end. So is it possible, as Rancourt is suggesting here, that this is a intelligence operation via the NIH using their operatives to implant this research project in Wuhan that does, hasn't produced anything, okay, <laughs> to create the ultimate red herring, to create the 19 Arab hijackers, wink, wink, uh, for this story of the so-called global pandemic. Now, UK column, Listeners know when I said wink, wink, you know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> gain of function, Chinese lab leak is the 19 Arab hijackers of this story. Okay, that's how you should look. That's how I'm looking at it because all of the evidence, the real evidence, not the hype, not the assumptions that there's a super virus, but the actual evidence suggests that this, it looks like a, an incredible deep state operation. And you would need that if you're planning to do a global a fascist takeover, you need a few backstories constructed in case things don't go perfectly well, and you need to, you need a fall guy, don't you? Indeed. So who's the fall guy in this? It's not Fauci. Fauci will take one for the team. Who's the fall guy? China. China's the fall guy. And entered Richard Dearlove yes. and etc. And all the intelligence experts lining up to opine on this uh, dangerous development and this our relationship with China. So that's where we're coming from on this. And uh, we absolutely welcome your comments and feedback uh, in the chat room or by email. Um, so then let's move on to uh, NATO then, Patrick. So this brings up this whole, uh, Mike, this whole opaque subject of the biowarfare. We, we, we hear about it. We know about Fort Dietrich, Port and Down, uh, we, we, Wuhan Institute of Virology, all these dangerous uh, research going on on various pathogens and dangerous bioweapons. So I'm gonna to point to this. This is an absolutely stunning report here by Freddie Ponton. This is up at 21st Century Wire. This is part one of a two-part series. This is loaded with information, okay? So if you're interested in the subject, you wanna dive in here deep. It's 
got all the original documents. NATO's Trojan horse behind Europe's COVID-19 response, part one, vaccinating Europe with a military experimental biodefense countermeasure. This redefines everything you saw in Europe, Mike, from what, it, what we thought it was before, which was governments and regulators approving quickly emergency use authorization, this new vaccines to, to, to deal with an emergency health, a public health emergency, to a DOD run out of the USA, jump, leaping over the EMA, the MRHA, okay, and then basically uh, giving a prototype product that doesn't need to go through any regulatory checks whatsoever, and basically distributing it under a state of emergency via NATO. That NATO is the interface with the European Union, and this article shows that Ursula van der Leyen herself, by executive order, yep. bypassed the EMA on this. So the, the legal cases are much stronger in Europe than in the U.S., because European law, they, they've absolutely... Uh, I think, broken a lot of the important parts of the agreements between the uh, regulatory agencies in various countries right. and the EMA. So they're out, of, they're out of contract, as it were, with this. So check this article out. It's absolutely incredible. Let's give you some highlights here. So just to give you a background, 1998, as a response to the perceived biothreat posed by the likes of Iraq, the DOD in the U.S. embarked on a project to inoculate over a million U.S. troops uh, against anthrax. Many refused the vaccine and were sanctioned, while others suffered horrible side effects. So that was the uh, Gulf War syndrome, okay? Yeah. So the Gulf War syndrome is likely from the anthrax vaccine. That's where this story begins. The story of Operation Warp Speed begins with the anthrax vaccine. And that's what you have to understand. That came up as a bio countermeasure. The vaccine rollout for COVID was a military medical countermeasure. It comes under the same exact aegis. So it's a different way of looking at this. So they go on. Here's a key player here early on. Robert Kaldek, a U.S. Air Force physician who also served as Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, HSS, here. And he was one of the masterminds behind shaping the Pentagon's biodefense ambitions. Kaldek is part of a tight-knit group of bioterror alarmists uh, and business-minded operatives embedded in government agencies and also the private biomilitary contractor sector. This is a multi-billion yeah. dollar industry. And it, it's a basically, you'll see, it's a, they're a law onto their own and the budgets are often opaque or the R&D is opaque. They don't necessarily have to produce results, but they just continue on with these projects. And now they've been activated. And he goes on, under his aegis, the program became uh, as much more than opaque department, largely accountable unto itself. Corruption tends to breed under such conditions. I agree. Caldec was the mastermind behind the rise of the new biotech industrial complex that captured the attention of many top officials across the federal government, as well as federal agencies, including HSS, BARDA, uh, and the Department of Agriculture. Agriculture is key there because we're talking about zoonosis and we're talking about pestilence and crops and things like that. So, and just, just to remind you here, when they say BARDA, uh, we, we showed you this graph before, that is the DARPA of the HSS. So that's where the experimental um, development research and all the weaponized stuff, and also all the emergency use authorizations have come from BARDA, not HSS, okay? So just to remind people, and that's under the aegis of the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, that the COVID vaccine rollout was under the aegis of the Pentagon. So, and we go back here. So here is a key paper here. So if you want to learn about how 
this, in, in terms of NATO and biological warfare, a strategy. This this is a great foundational paper by Dr. or Dr. David Franz, I believe is doctor. It is doctor. And listen to this. Here's the key part: to produce a true mass casualty event uh, attack, the, the terrorists will likely have to use agents from that uh, threat list developed and tested for biological warfare application. However, uh, because of a small non-lethal attack or even a biological hoax, hmm. a biological hoax is adequate to cause panic and lead to the coveted national television coverage. The modern uh, bioterrorist probably has a much wider spectrum of agents from which they can choose. However, the terrorist spectrum, while much broader, is not necessarily more lethal. He's got the same background as the head of Pfizer, uh, Albert Berla, veterinarian science. So you have all these people from veterinarian sciences, and that comes under the One Health agenda, mm. which the which the WHO is now pushing. And zoonosis is the whole basis of One Health, combining food supplies, right. health, and climate change, because they're saying climate change will drive pandemics. You see how it all comes together. It's all very neat, isn't it? So f thanks to Freddie Ponton for putting all this together and also for exposing the One Health agenda, which is coming to the fore now. And we go here now to Europe, Mike. Uh, it is up to the EMA and their Committee on Human Medicine uh, to grant conditional marketing approval, camaraderie, the, uh, the Pfizer vaccine, conditional market approval. So why was the CMA granted to the European Commission, Ursula van der Leyen, and not the EMA? There was a, by executive fiat. That's what happened. So why was it done by executive fiat in order to bypass any potential oversight of the fast-tracked experimental product, the vaccine? There's a, there's a cover-up here because Ursula van der Leyen deleted her text messages, didn't she, in that scandal? They can't find them. They lost them. And they were just about this exact subject here. And of course, this is, this is part of the problem with them using text messages, WhatsApp messages, and so on. This stuff can be disappeared. There's no minutes taken. Yep, they can, unless you can sequester the metadata or something like this. So we have here an active cover-up, okay? And this is what Freddie is explaining in this article, one of many cover-ups, actually. So big problem here. And this might be the basis for the legal challenge, what we're seeing here. Likely it will, if there is going to be one. So these injections were developed and deployed by manufacturers, vaccine manufacturers under the leadership of the United States Department of Defense, with regulators like the FDA and the EMA very much aware that efficacy could not be established since no immunization studies were ever conducted? And the answer to that is yes. No, they didn't do any of that. The, the, especially the look at the Pfizer studies, they didn't do any immunization studies along with the what they called clinical studies. It was a joke. So, but it doesn't matter because it was all legal under Operation Warp Speed, a military operation, uh, which totally makes sense for a high-level EU NATO military operation to have served as an interface between the DOD and all EU member states. Uh, what we know so far is that the US DOD wanted to secure and guarantee safe delivery of their experimental products while hiding their true nature uh, before they could arrive at their final destination in European citizens' arms. It, it, it can't get any more clear than this. Um, and you remember the soldiers going to the schools in the UK? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? And all this calls like, we need, we need to get the military to help. You remember all that? That's what this was about. 
um, all of that fell under this aegis, okay? And we'll give you really specific details next week on NATO, NATO's role in the vaccine rollout. That comes next week. And so here, if you want any more information on bioweapons in general and a lot of the boondoggle projects and the fact that a lot of this is vaporware, this is a great video here, The History of Bioweapons by Dr. Sam Bailey. Uh, you just go to her website, Bioweapons BS. You'll find that video on Odyssey, uh, but also on Rumble and some of the other more freer uh, video platforms. And so that brings us to, you know, just back to the lab leak. You know, this is, you look, this article is by Michael Bryant. This is an audit of everything that happened in Italy uh, during the, the beginning of the so-called pandemic. So it's, this is excellent journalism. He's basically given a full timeline of events, and he's basically broken it down to explain all of the so-called deaths and all of the so-called cases, besides even the fraud of PCR, and breaking down how the healthcare system was stripped down in the years previous to the so-called pandemic in 2020. Uh, he's also talking about all the different respiratory outbreaks uh, in that exact region in the years running up to. And the numbers in the previous years were comparable to the COVID uh, outbreak. So basically, it looks like they overlaid a pandemic over the top of one of the worst air quality, one of the sickest and oldest populations in Europe, and in a city that has just been plagued with pollution. Okay, and he breaks it down, and also a shortage of hospital beds as well. Uh, ridiculously short. Under austerity measures, they completely stripped the Italian healthcare system yeah. going forward. So, and they got a bailout as a result of the pandemic outbreak. They got the bailout that Mario Draghi was lobbying for before this thing happened. They ended up getting it. <laughs> so, this is all broken down in here. This is a great article. And if you want to see the full uh, analysis by the author, this is Michael Bryant. And we've got his interview up at 21st Century Wire where he explains all of the study that he did on this. It's an exhaustive study and it absolutely proves the case. There was no pandemic in Northern Italy, no COVID-19 pandemic. There were other epidemics going on, but not a super virus. And also, this is interesting. Do you remember the talking point about Chinese migrant workers in northern Italy? Yes. Well, it turns out that uh, the per capita of Chinese migrant workers in northern Italy is much less than in Tuscany. And in Tuscany, they hardly had any problem down there. And in southern Italy, even less. So it's the same people, same population, but you put in the various factors, environmental and also uh, age and just existing illnesses of a population living in the most polluted city in Europe. Um, you're going to get different results in terms of people dying in ICU. Add the ventilators. The midazolam is also noted in here. Italy was bringing in midazolam. Okay. So it's all in this article. Right. So th this is the type of study that demolishes the COVID-19 global pandemic narrative. And this is, it's not over. The next one's going to be about New York. And we'll share that, uh, we'll share those findings with you uh, possibly in the future. In the future. Okay, let's, uh, let's come back to the UK then. And well, visitors to the UK will need an electronic travel authorization in the future. Now, of course, in the United States, you already have this, in Canada already has this. But what's fascinating about this is this is gonna to apply to uh, people from coming to the UK from the United States, from Canada, from Japan, from Australia, from New Zealand, from the EU. If you wanna come from the EU, you're gonna to have to uh, apply for this. 
Uh, the, it's an online application. It's effectively a form of digital ID. It's attached to your passport uh, that you're allowed to come into the country uh, and you have to go through the electronic uh, passport lens in order to use it. Uh, and once you have approval, you, it will last for two years. Um, but the point here is that uh, this is the first time that the UK has implemented this kind of digital uh, travel document, if you want, because it's an add-on to, to your passport. Um, uh, but it's not just the UK, because as I say, the US and Canada are already doing this, but the EU is about to roll out their version of it as well. Um, so they're going to... Uh, they're calling it ETIAS. I'm not quite sure what the acronym stands for. Uh, and that's going to enable travel within the 30 countries of the EU. So uh, we're seeing more and more d moves towards digital uh, documentation required for everything. I just wanted to, to highlight that. Uh, let's just uh, move on to 50-minute cities and uh, ULES. And the argument over uh, ultra-low emission zones in London is continuing to uh, escalate uh, as... Uh, City can attempts to push this zone out as far as Heathrow Airport. Patrick, he's wanting to push it out as far as Heathrow. Uh, so anybody visiting Heathrow would potentially be required to pay the ULES fine. The cover charge. The cover charge. For the world's biggest nightclub. Right, but the Daily Mail here reported, reporting newly installed ULES cameras are vandalized with wires cut and lenses painted black amid growing backlash at City Can's planned expansion of the zone. Have people uh, been getting ideas from the French on this? Well, could, could quite possibly <laughs> because be. Because this is what's going on in France. So, Same thing. So, uh, you know, cutting the, the wires and so on to, to stop them working. Well, people may have a view on that. Now, uh, I just want to mention that tomorrow in Exeter, uh, there is a, a Hold the Line event, uh, 11th March, 12 p.m. at Exeter Cathedral Green. Uh, this is about this type of issue, 15-minute cities, uh, digital currencies, and so on. Uh, if anybody wants to uh, go to that, and, and I would encourage as many people to go to that as possible, as they say there, more numbers equals more awareness, uh, and it's about growing awareness at this stage. It's funny, Mike, people who are protesting 15-minute cities are being labeled as far-right uh, by some politicians and by some members of the, uh, let's say, liberal intelligentsia media. I mean, how does that work? It's like, is everything far right now? Yeah, everything is far right now, yes. <laughs> everything. Yes. Every this has been building for a number of years, this narrative that anybody that is, uh, uh, you know, in any way dissenting against government policy is a far right extremist. So anything that's left of full-blown technocratic leftist progressive uh, collectivism, that's far right. Absolutely. Okay, I understand. I got to update my... Uh, my, Mexican, yeah. yeah what's yep. the, the Nolan chart. It's called the Nolan chart. Yeah. My Nolan chart. i got to update it. Yeah. Okay. If you like what the UK Column does, if you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your support very much needed and appreciated. Uh, or you can pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do share uh, any material you find on the various platforms. Now, as I said a few minutes ago, we're going to talk about Georgia. So let's just bring uh, Georgia on screen here, Patrick. And uh, well, the headline here, thousands of protesters come out for a second day of protests. Uh, a foreign agents law that the, uh, the Georgian government is attempting to bring in. Now, we've seen Russia do that, but it's not just Russia that's been pushing this kind of legislation. 
No, well, the U.S. has had this for a very long time. You have to register as a foreign agent uh, under various guises, but uh, the FARA Act uh, in the U.S. So, but you can see this has been raging for what a couple of days now. It's uh, received a lot of international attention. And but what's really going on behind the scenes on this? Let's let's dig a little deeper. Um, is this just really protesting against this legislation, or are there other actors involved? Well, there just might be. Let's take a look at the story itself. Uh, this is The Guardian. So we chose The Guardian because that'll give you a standard globalist view of how uh, Washington and the globalists and the intelligence services are wanting to frame this. So Georgia drops bill on foreign agents after two nights of violent protests. So this morning, um, they've dropped the bill. So it's now being walked back, and they're going to have to rethink the situation. After criticism, the law was similar to Russian legislation, so they're framing it as a Russian uh, thing. So they're calling it, the, the crowds were chanting, repeal the Russian law. Basically, my, my translation's rough, but re repeal the Russian law. So they're calling it a Russian law. As you rightly pointed out, other countries have the same. Mm. So what, where did this come from? So the ruling party says it will withdraw this bill. Um, but that's not the end of the story. Let's take a look at this. Georgia Dream Party, this is the current party in power, um, said that in a statement Thursday that they unconditionally withdraw the bill. We support it without any reservations that cited the need to uh, reduce confrontation in society. So they've capitulated uh, to the mob on this, but who's backing the mob? See, that's the interesting part. And so if you look at the standard Euro take on this, the EU must act on Georgia's foreign agent law, uh, says, and this was on March 6th. This is on Euroactive here. And who else is opining on this? None other than dun, 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 the queen of chaos herself, Samantha Power. This school has come up from the basement to comment on this one. Uh, Obama's regime change operative, uh, Supreme, uh, Samantha Power, now head of USIAD, a uh, notorious front for the Central Intelligence Agency, among other things. That, that's not me saying that. That's well documented. Anyway, she stresses that the foreign agent laws gravely threaten the ability of Georgians to fulfill their own economic, social, and other aspirations. What's she talking about? EU membership? Yes. And NATO membership? Yes. Okay, so the, the NGOs, the, the current government in Georgia, are basically saying, we don't want too much of this, these foreign NGOs flooding the country and employing all of the most educated and well-heeled uh, students on graduation and turning them into sort of globalists. It, it kind of comes down to that. It's a kind of a basic nationalist argument, not unlike what Viktor Orban has done in Hungary, very similar, which is in interesting because Georgia and Russia are not best of friends no. at the moment. So Samantha Power wants this all rolled back. This is bad. It's We want an open society. George Soros is very active in Georgia and has been dumping millions and billions of dollars over the decades uh, in these various states like Ukraine, Georgia, and Eastern Europe. So let's just take a look at this. Here's another clue. The Georgia Dream, this is the party in power, is attempting to remove the public's ability to monitor the actions of authorities. That's not 100% true, uh, but nonetheless, let's look at who signed this open letter here uh, from the Georgia Court Watch. This is an NGO. I did look at their funding, Mike, but I'm pretty sure I know who's behind who's going to be on the list because look who signed this petition. Let's take a look at that. One second here. Who we got here? Georgia Democratic Initiative. You could look up the funding on all of these, but let's just fast forward. Open Society Foundation of Georgia. Soros. Transparency International. I think that's Soros. Soros, Soros as well. Uh, Guardians of Democracy. I like the sound of that. 
Uh, and let's just go further. Atlantic Council of Georgia. Ouch. The Atlantic Council. I didn't know the Atlantic Council had a franchise in Georgia, but there you go. That is the regime change uh, headquarters are actually in Washington, D.C. It's a nice little satellite operation. Women for, for a Common Future. I can't imagine who's funding them. And the list goes on and on, Mike. It's literally a rogues gallery of regime change uh, subterfuge right there. So I just wanted to, on this issue, just wanted to show this article from New Eastern Europe. Now, this is written by somebody who's clearly uh, very pro-Western and anti-Russian in their own uh, right. Uh, so the headline is the, Europe, the European dream. Georgia's growing anti-European rhetoric undermines its pro-Western aspirations. Now, the pro-Western aspirations came about in 2004, I believe, when uh, Mikhail Saakashvili became uh, the head of state. So so uh, it says here, the ruling Georgian dream government has continued to frustrate wishes of Georgian society for integration with Western bodies such as the EU and NATO, right? So let's just take a couple of quotes from this. Georgia, shortly after restoring its independence in 1991, opted to become openly pro-Western, uh, deepened its cooperation with Western partners and gained membership in international organizations over the next few years. In 2003, the country saw a peaceful color revolution, which brought a new agenda focused on focusing on becoming a member of the EU and NATO. Over the years, uh, there were many reforms passed, which were reflected in the Aquas Agreement report uh, published by the EU in February 2023. Uh, the growing prominence of anti-EU, sorry, anti-European rhetoric in Georgian politics is a worrisome development. Uh, the risk is that the progress that Georgia has made in recent years could potentially be reversed in a short period of time. So this author, at least, extremely concerned that Georgia might have a more Russian outlook or even worse, a more Russian and Chinese outlook uh, than uh, an EU and NATO outlook. He, he goes on. Sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say, they're, they're, when they're talking about reforms, Mike, uh, we showed you that petition before. It's about the sort of the 12 boxes to tick for preparing to become an EU member. Right. So that's, that, that's right. reforms. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, so it goes on. After coming to power in 2012, the Georgian Dream Party followed what we would call an appeasement path in forming its foreign policy towards Russia. Uh, this was the opposite policy to the one pursued by the United National Movement Party when it came uh, was in power from 2003 to 2012. Uh, also, since 2012, the issue of the frozen conflict on Georgia's territory slowly faded into the background. So that that's the key point. So uh, talking about Abkhazia and South, and South Ossetia, South Ossetia, right? Yeah. So so uh, Sakashvili leaves the country, uh, moves under, to Ukraine under a bit of a cloud. Uh, it has to be said, the Georgian Dream Party has come in uh, to uh, power, uh, and they have reoriented their view. Now, in the meantime, uh, last March, uh, the uh, Georgian Dream Party submitted their application to the European Union for consideration of membership, along with Ukraine and, and I think Moldova was the other one, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the EU refused their application on the basis that they hadn't uh, completed the reforms that were necessary uh, because the Georgian Dream and the people that are criticizing the Georgian Dream Party are saying, you don't really want to join at all. You're just going through the motions because you know that there's you know, public support for that, uh, and but actually you're you're taking the country in a different direction. S similar position to where Serbia is and Moldova in right. that sense. They kind of they they have some fealty towards Russia uh, historically and even politically. There's a 
pro-Russian bloc in, in Georgia that's, you know, not insignificant. But, but what you, the, the bottom line about the protests and what you're seeing now and the repeal of this bill, this is exactly like Maidan 1.0. So you've got pro-EU youth who are out railing against the uh, government, um, in this case, wanting to uh, re repeal a law, but in the case of uh, the Maidan Square in 2014, it was to overthrow the democratically elected government. That was 2.0, the, the coup. 1.0 was the protest that preceded it. This is 1.0. This is Maidan 1.0. Classic, dividing the population between pro-EU and then pro-Russia, effectively. Yeah. And so it, this is outside in, uh, meddling going on. I absolutely uh, guarantee, Mike, and all of the actors that we just showed on screen, they're all involved behind the scenes. Yes. Now, something that we should point out is that the uh, the founder of the Georgian Dream Party, currently the uh, the party of government in Georgia at the moment, uh, is the richest. His name escapes me at the moment, but he is the richest man in Georgia. Uh, he made his money in Russia, so it's hard. I don't think it's really surprising that that uh, Georgia, at least this particular political influence in Georgia, would be looking in that direction. But anyway, with respect to the EU membership, this is what. Uh, Joseph Burrell had to say uh, that the bill that we're talking about here uh, goes against EU values and is incompatible with Georgia's aim of joining. Its adoption may have serious repercussions on our relations. But uh, as usual, we've got to leave it to the Russians to hit the nail on the head. So here's Dmitry Peskov. The Kremlin didn't inspire anything here because the allegation is that this is Russian influence uh, in Georgia. The Kremlin didn't inspire anything here. The Kremlin has absolutely nothing to do with it. If I understand it correctly, this bill is very similar to the equivalent law in the United States. Yeah, so Russia's got one, USA has one, Georgia has one. So And the UK is very keen to have one. Yeah, so in, in, if you look at the broader issue here, Mike, it's disturbing that we're getting more closed societies, okay? there's People are battening down the hatches, basically. And why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? Because of all of the outside interference. So yeah. problem, reaction, solution. Yeah. And this, the, the, the problem has come from the United States and Western NGOs that are trying to colonize uh, and, and do networks of subterfuge uh, across the world. The reaction is visceral and the reaction is a nationalist impulse. And then the solution will be, well, the Western, you know, overthrow the government or we need to sort of threaten them militarily. Mm. Uh, which is exactly what's happening. So it's a very disturbing trend, unfortunately, and uh, but that's what it is. Okay, now, uh, in, in the meantime, let's move on to Syria for a second. Now, uh, the US, in the US, there's been a vote taking place in Congress over the issue of US uh, involvement in Syria and the fact that there are US boots in the ground in Syria. Uh, so this is antiwar.com, and the headline here is Congressional Progressive Caucus urges a yes vote uh, the Syria War Powers Resolution. So this was uh, an effort by, uh, what's his first name, Mr. Gates? Uh, Matt Gates. Matt Gates, uh, to get uh, withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria. So uh, what this is saying is that the Congressional Progressive Council is urging all of its members in the House of Representatives to vote yes on the Syria War Powers Resolution introduced by Matt Gates, uh, which was scheduled for a vote on Wednesday. Uh, then uh, let's have a look at this one. This is from The uh, Intercept. Uh, the headline is House Hawks Bill Bipartisan Effort to End War in Syria. Sorry, Kill uh, Bipartisan Effort uh, to End War in Syria. So the, the vote was lost, but we'll explain more about that in a second. Uh, and this article saying that uh, uh, that the CPC had, this is a Congressional Progressive Caucus, had urged 100 House members to support the vote 
the vote was scheduled for, for, Wednesday, for Wednesday evening US time, but unfortunately, as I say, it was lost. Uh, so here's defense news, House votes down, Gates bill to withdraw troops from uh, Syria. So it was 103 uh, in favor, 321 against. What's interesting about this, Patrick, is that uh, 56 Democrats and 47 Republicans, so even more Democrats voting than Republicans voting in favor of this. Um, and uh, well, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but uh, maybe 100 votes is progress at least. And it certainly brings the issue right to the forefront of the news agenda. That's the main thing, Mike, because a lot of Americans didn't even know the U.S. have troops and they're illegally occupying Syria and violating the territorial sovereignty of the Syrian Republic. Uh, I, I, I tend to hear that argument being made about Ukraine, right? Right. Isn't that the beef that the Americans have against Russia? They violated the sanctity of the UN Charter and the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Well, that seems to be okay in Syria for the United States because most Americans don't even know it's happening because they're totally aloof to this. So yeah, that is that's probably the most valuable thing about this vote. I am so impressed, I have to say, with uh, the legislative efforts of Matt Gates, mm -hmm. And uh, we, a lot of us were not sure what sort of conservative he was a few years ago. It was, it was hard to tell, but now he has put his money where his mouth is and, and risked a lot in terms of his political reputation, put a lot of political capital on the table on this. And so he's won a lot of support from the Libertarian Party, uh, visibly online, a great uh, plaudits from them, right. and also from the Ron Paul wing of the Republican Party as well, and also from Democrats, some Democrats. The biggest hawks right now are in, on the Democratic side. Yes, um, Sheldon Whitehouse and all these, Adam Schiff, uh, Bob Menendez, all these people have, I, I don't know how all of them voted on this, I'm assuming they uh, want to keep U.S. Troops, troops there. There. So, but anyway, we, we, we'll try to follow up on this because I think this is a this is a major development. Yes. For U.S. politics. Uh, okay. So uh, everybody will notice by now that Vanessa is not with us today. She is away uh, for a week or so. Uh, but yesterday morning, I spoke to her um, about the latest developments in Syria. So let's just have a listen. Okay, Vanessa. Lots going on in Syria at the moment, uh, and lots as a result of funding suddenly being pumped, as you've been reporting over the last couple of weeks, into uh, the White Helmets. But is something being reorganized here? Is there a new organization being set up? Yeah, I mean, it's um, for me, uh, what is extraordinary is that we've almost done a, a sort of a Groundhog Day for propaganda, and we're back in 2011 when we were at the height of the propaganda against the Syrian government uh, and the Syrian forces. And um, what we're seeing now is, is just an extraordinary uh, revamping of the White Helmet organization that, of course, we recognize as being um, a CIA MI6 incubated organization embedded exclusively with armed groups like Al-Qaeda, like ISIS, and their various uh, terrorist splinter groups in Syria, and aiding and enabling uh, UK foreign policy, US foreign policy, which is effectively to remove the Syrian government. And of course, they've been instrumental in staging um, the alleged chemical attacks that certainly as regards uh, Duma 2018 have been disproven um, by the dissident inspectors at the OPCW who did not by any means agree that chemical weapons of any sort, not even chlorine, had been used in Duma. And that, of course, concurred with the statements that I took from doctors and medical staff at the time. 
Um, so that's just the background, very brief background on the white helmets and their brand was largely discredited. The earthquake has allowed the West to effectively, um, as I said, resurrect them as um, a standard bearer for UK, US foreign policy in Syria, which as I've mentioned is not only uh, um, removal of the government, but also partitioning of Syria and the securing of Syrian borders by hostile states in order to shrink central Syria down into a state, into a very vulnerable state with only one friendly open border to Lebanon. And of course, Lebanon is also being um, largely destroyed economically and deliberately uh, by the US, uh, the UK and France actually is involved there. But what we've seen more recently, um, and even in the last few days, is an extraordinary attempt to sort of push the white helmets almost into the political limelight. And we've seen this uh, letter to Joseph Borrell of the European Union. Um, I think he's the secretary of the European Union. Sorry, yeah, he's he's the, the high so, representative for foreign affairs. So he's effectively yeah. the European Union's, or the European Commission's uh, foreign minister. Yes, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> um, and basically, we've seen this extraordinary letter that has been sent by various MEPs to Joseph Borrell, demanding that the European Parliament itself directly funds the White Helmet Group, which is, we have proven, an auxiliary of Al-Qaeda. So, I mean, you know, this for me is, is a step beyond. It, also within the letter, it states that Germany and the UK are now directly funding the White Helmets. Previously, of course, the UK was running the funds through Mayday Rescue, um, which then was effectively closed down in 2019 when James LeMessurier um, allegedly again committed suicide. Um, having been um, discovered to have embezzled funds from um, Mayday Rescue itself. Uh, and um, then more recently through Kimonics, which is a US-based extension of USAID and by default then of the CIA. And um, so what we're seeing here now is a direct push. So there's no longer this... Uh, deny that this plausible deniability clause <laughs> in funding the white helmets they are now pushing and empowering the white helmets and in my view it appears as if they are presenting them as a political alternative with a view to partitioning and annexing the northwestern section of idlib territory of idlib governorates in syria um, okay, now uh, on a broad, more broad issue, slightly more broad issue, mm -hmm. a couple of days ago, General Milley uh, decided just to head over mm -hmm. to Syria. So we had a US government representative entering uh, the, the sovereign territory of a foreign country without permission. Uh, to, mm -hmm. the, the Syrian government clearly took that as a very uh, aggressive act. Uh, and they, they were pretty upset mm. about it. I mean, what are your thoughts on, on that? What I've talked about, of course, is the West is exploiting uh, the humanitarian tragedy of the earthquake to um, increase funding to the armed groups, as we've mentioned, either via the White Helmets or directly into northwest Idlib, um, which is under the control of Al-Qaeda and Abu Mohammed Jalani, 
<clears throat> but the arrival of a top-level uh, military general is fairly unprecedented. We have had regular visits from the U.S. to the Northeast whenever the Kurds have seemed to be vacillating and, and sort of um, um, turning towards uh, negotiation with Damascus. Then we have had arrivals of U.S. State Department officials into the Northeast to persuade them back again um, to, to ally themselves uh, with the United States. Um, the U.S., of course, has continued stealing oil since the earthquake. Uh, a number of convoys have left uh, with stolen Syrian resources since the earthquake. But the arrival of General Milley, to me, uh, substantiates my view that the West is ramping up its military intervention uh, in Syria after the earthquake because it perceives Syria now to be at its most vulnerable. Of course, it's already vulnerable after years of uh, some of the most savage unilateral coercive measures imposed by the US, UK, EU and its allies. Um, but what is interesting, Mike, is the timing. So he arrived uh, in the Northeast for negotiations with the Kurds, but also he met with ISIS terrorists at their headquarters in Kamishli. The day after uh, his visit, there was an ISIS riot in the same prison in Kamishli. Uh, and the day after that, or at 2 a.m. in the morning on the 7th, Israel attacked uh, Aleppo uh, International Airport, which is a civilian airport, and an airport which was receiving the majority of the humanitarian aid for the sectors that had been um, so devastatingly hit by the earthquake. Now, Israel, uh, ISIS attacks have increased since the earthquake, and of course we know that they are under the control of the CIA in the US, um, and those attacks have been against civilians, but also Israeli aggression has been deliberately targeting both civilian areas and uh, civilian infrastructure, such as airports. Now, the military here, the contacts that I have, have told me that they believe if the West is indeed ramping up the military war, and they do believe that that is what is happening, then they believe Israel will be tasked with destroying Syrian infrastructure. And that is definitely the pattern that we're seeing now. And of course, the fact that Israel attacked two days after the visit, or three days after the visit of General Milley, is um, not a coincidence. Again, another attack on uh, by Israel on this time civilian. I mean, they can't even nearly claim that there was. You know, the last time they attacked a civilian area of Damascus, they they were claiming yeah. that, that well, there were military personnel stationed there or living there or whatever. But there's no excuse for the Aleppo attack. And the question is, or what is the danger now? Or do you suspect? that in fact, while Syria is still reeling from the effects of the earthquake, that there's going to be an effort to actually destroy more basic infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, I do actually believe, sadly, that that is the plan. Um, we've seen it put in place already. I mentioned the three ISIS attacks against civilians, not against military targets, east of Homs, while they were collecting truffles, which is the kind of speciality of the season here. Um, and I think, as far as I know, the, the figures are a bit vague, but I think it's more than 100 civilians killed and many others, dozens more taken captive. We know that, that Milley visited the ISIS headquarters, the headquarters, by the way, that, that the UK is also responsible for funding. They're funding the holding camps for ISIS. And we also know, I mean, there are um, 
there was the vote for the US to remove their armed forces from Syria. But my fear is, even with that, Mike, is what does that do? That leaves basically a terrorist vacuum, right? They've established these holding camps in the Northeast, holding more than 15,000 ISIS terrorists and their families. Um, if the US presence is no longer there and they're no longer controlling them and ferrying them around and dropping them off wherever they want them to carry out attacks, including Iraq, what does that mean? That means that we're left with effectively an army of ISIS fighters um, left to their own devices in the Northeast. And those that aren't being sent to Ukraine could carry out further incursions into Syria. So, you know, from all angles at the moment, Syria is under serious threat, both economically, um, but now more seriously um, and more present danger, let's say, is that of uh, increased military conflict. The millions that are coming into the Northwest, I mean, what are they coming in for? Ostensibly, they're coming in for the White Helmets. White Helmets are a, a group of less than 3,000 volunteers. <laughs> so, you know, what are they going to use 300 million plus? What are they going to use that for? And if there's suddenly going to be direct funding from the EU parliament, we know how much they've sent to Ukraine. So we know how much they're capable of sending. Where are the weapons going that are being sent into Ukraine? We know some of them are going into Africa. How many are coming into Idlib via the humanitarian corridors that now the West wants to increase? So they want to open the, the, the corridors that were formerly closed down by Syria and Russia because they knew that they were being used for gun running and for bringing militants into the Northwest. So we're in a very precarious situation for Syria right now. Vanessa, thank you very much. We'll leave it there for now. That is fantastic. Uh, you obviously um, suffering at the moment from uh, another electricity uh, failure. So yeah. 50, 15 hours already. Have they said whether it's whether or when it's coming back or what, what are your expectations? It's in the hands of, I don't know who, but yeah, it, it's, it's been the longest ever for me. It's now about 16 hours of now. So I don't have anything. I don't have hot water. I don't have the inverter. I don't have my laptop. So um, thank you for doing this while my phone still has some juice left in it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing this. And uh, uh, we'll see you next week, no doubt. Okay, so thanks to Vanessa. Of course, the lack of electricity stole all the color from that. Uh, <laughs> from that, uh, but anyway, uh, you know some important points there. And I mean, while that was on, Patrick, uh, we were talking about you know why it is important for uh, the border, the eastern border, the border with Iraq, to be controlled, and why the U.S. is there in the first place. Yeah, they're there to make sure that it's not an open border, so that Iraq and Syria can't cooperate. And of course, Iraq and Iran have an open border. So if you have an open border between Syria and Iraq, you have a trade, you have cooperation from Iran all the way to Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And oh, we can't have that. Certainly Israel can't have that. And so this is why ISIS and all these terrorist groups are allowed to infest 
these areas, and then the U.S. is there to fight terrorism, supposedly, mm. uh, but what they're really doing, aside from squatting on the oil fields in Syria uh, and choking off the Syrian economy and the people uh, while they're under stress from sanctions, they're also keeping that border uh, unstable and shut, basically. So they can't have the common market that they have been dreaming of uh, in that part of the Middle East right. for a very, very long time. It's funny how that works, isn't it? Yes. Uh, somebody in the chat box saying Vanessa should uh, use solar uh, to, to top up our electricity. Of course, that's only possible if there's such a thing as a solar panel in Syria, which there aren't because there's nothing going because of the sanctions. Yeah. Uh, there is nothing going into Syria, so you cannot get uh, anything. In they, fact, don't, they don't get government subsidies no. for all their green tech like we do no, uh, because we're sanctioning them and destroying their economy. Indeed. Now, uh, let's move to Ukraine then. Uh, and yesterday, lots going on with, uh, the, with more bombardments from Russia. Not just any, Mike. This was the largest missile strike since the beginning, since the opening days of this conflict 12 months ago. Including hypersonic missiles. So uh, the most severe, as you say, for, for a very long time from the beginning, perhaps. Uh, it cut power to the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear power plant, so it was uh, kept operational uh, through diesel generators. Uh, the power was eventually restored again. Uh, and uh, so what's quite incredible here is that uh, although the Ukrainians claiming that they were able to deal with some of the attack, for example, some of the, the uh, unmanned drones from the Iranian unmanned drones were very keen to tell us they were Iranian unmanned drones. Uh, they weren't able to deal with the, uh, the uh, hypersonic missiles or in fact, some of the older weapons uh, such as uh, KH-22 anti-ship missiles and S-300 anti-aircraft missiles. Uh, so uh, that was all happening yesterday. A missile also hit uh, an energy facility in Odessa and that caused more power cuts there as well. Um, so uh, there we go. We had an interesting, I was on a, a, a chat, a group panel discussion with some people who are uh, in Russia, some who've left the Ukraine, and also some journalists from Europe on Twitter spaces. Um, and the, the, someone made a really interesting comment. They said, the, it, according to their sources, that Russia has been uh, watching arms shipments patiently and making diligent notes about what's stored where, where the arsenals are, where the Western weapons are going, and they have a good on-the-ground intelligence network um, in Ukraine. Obviously, they would uh, for years, um, and so they're waiting, and then when they have the opportunity to do a major strike, um, and they'll hit m multiple facilities at once. So hold that, hold that thought for a second, because I just want to put the defense intelligence update on screen. We can talk about this more in a second. It says, on the 9th of March, 2023, Russia conducted a wave of at least 80 long-range strikes against Ukrainian cr critical infrastructure. They deployed cruise missiles, air defense missiles in a surface-to-surface role, Iranian one-way un attack on crewed aerial vehicles, and an unusually large number of hypersonic air-launched ballistic missiles during the attack. This was the first major wave of long-range strikes since 16th of February and likely to be one of the largest since December 2022. Ukrainian officials reported at least 11 civilians killed. The interval between waves of strikes is probably growing because Russia now needs to stockpile a critical mass of newly produced missiles directly from industry before it can resource a big strike. That, of course, is completely counter to what you've just said, uh, because and what you've just said seems to be much more rational. That actually, Russia is being very strategic about how, to, how it deploys these weapons. But the Ministry of Defense, the best excuse they can come up with is because Russia needs to stockpile 
uh, more weapons and so they actually don't have enough weapons to, to attack more often, which is complete nonsense, of course. This is total gaslighting yes. by British intelligence. So what they're saying is that Russia wants to do a, a prosecute a scorched earth campaign, merciless and pound civilians. And the reason they can't do that is because they're out of ammo, <laughs> not because they're not making civilian targets um, in, in their sites. And they're clearly not. And Russia's slow progress, according to the American punditry in the Beltway, is because they've met with fierce Ukrainian resistance. Um, but really, they've been avoiding, meticulously avoiding civilian casualties. And why is that? That's because they're planning to, in some cases, govern over some of these areas. And you can't do what the United States do uh, when they do bombing runs, like in Raqqa, where they can kill 20,000 people uh, over lunch. Mm and never have to pay a penny for it, politically or otherwise, and they just walk away from the disaster. Mm -hmm. That is Mosul, that is Raqqa, and the list goes on and on, and Fallujah, and the list goes on and on. Right. So R Russia doesn't uh, uh, prosecute its um, military operations the same way America does, but Americans and Westerners pr project on Russia the things that they themselves do, and that forms their narratives. And this is why foreign policy thinking, Mike, is very dangerous right now in Ukraine because uh, it, everybody has uh, using completely um, ridiculous metaphors from the history to say to explain why Putin's doing this or they're doing this, and so we have very uneducated people with very little uh, historical knowledge and appreciation uh, for international relations, and this is one of the reasons why we're in the situation we're in right now. Right. In the meantime, is it true that more Ukrainians are very keen for? Peace talks, this, or at least negotiations. Yeah, this is a great, great story here. So Kiev's security chief, I think this was on a program called Greater Lviv uh, on TV. So he's saying um, there's a dangerous tendency developing among Ukrainians, Mike. What could that be? Uh, well, according to polling here, more citizens want their government to sit down at the negotiation table with Moscow, says Alexei Dan uh, Danilov uh, has admitted here. And we have the, the clip. We'll play it. Um, and we have the subtitles as well. So go ahead and watch this. Російськомовний канал був після мого зауваження. Вони зараз перейшли на державну мову. От, але майте на увазі, що таких стає все більше, більше і більше. Це дуже небезпечна тенденція, коли люди навіть західної України починають про такі речі говорити. And, and couple this with a lot of comments now coming on. If you're looking at Ukrainian Twitter, they're starting to say not so nice things about Zelensky. So, th so that conversation's beginning now as well. Mm -hmm. So at some point, Zelensky will become the fall guy for being a Western puppet, and he'll be held responsible for basically uh, the dismemberment of his country and the absolute slaughter that the front line has become uh, in, in so far in this, in just 12 months, losing easily, by most people's estimations now, over 100,000 soldiers. 
So, I mean, and that might be an underestimation. Yeah. But, you know, that's all going to come back on Zelensky and eventually will probably come back on the West as well because they've been micromanaging this through that puppet in Kiev. So the whole thing is going to change. As soon as there's any peace talks, Zelensky will immediately become the scapegoat. The state of emergency will be over and the whole paradigm shifts at that point. So they'll have to introduce a new actor uh, on the Ukrainian side. And what will happen to Zelensky? Yeah, well... And I think we know what's very likely to happen to Zelensky at the end of the day. Anyone's guess. Yes. Uh, well, let's uh, bring the Attorney General Victoria Prentice on screen. Here's what she was tweeting out yesterday. She went to Ukraine yesterday because, of course, uh, she's way to gather more evidence of war crimes. Uh, and uh, so she visited a town destroyed by missile strikes. She laid a wreath uh, to commemorate civilians killed in the conflict. Uh, she took part in a, this is part of a three day visit. Uh, to Ukraine, um, and uh, she met Ukrainian counterparts and so on. So uh, she, of course, is looking for uh, evidence in inverted commas for war crimes. Uh, this goes hand in hand with the, the whole rhetoric from Gordon Brown at the moment uh, to, to not so much bring full-blown war crimes tribunal against Russia, but accuse Russia of the crime of aggression. Aggression. Yes. Right. Now let's uh, move on to Nord Stream uh, 2. And uh, well, here's the New York Times. New York Times claimed this as an exclusive, uh, but then the German press uh, also claimed it as an exclusive. The Zeit. Yes, but let's, uh, let's have a look at what the U uh, New York Times said. Intelligence suggests pro-Ukrainian group sabotage pipelines. Uh, they say new intelligence reviewed by US officials. Uh, how good are the US at, or Britain at intelligence? Uh, we seem to get involved in wars on the basis of dodgy intelligence. But anyway, it's an oxymoron US intelligence. Yes, yep. uh, suggests that a pro-Ukrainian group carried out the attack on Nord Stream pipeline. So this is an attempt to cover up uh, the exposure of uh, at least uh, Seymour Hersh's exposure of what happened here. Let's uh, continue. US officials said they had no evidence that Zelensky of Ukraine or his top lieutenants were involved in the operation. Uh, they say that there was as much, sorry, that there was a, a much they did not know about the perpetrators or their affiliations. Uh, the review of newly collected intelligence suggests that they were opponents of uh, Putin, uh, but does not specify the members of the group or who directed or paid for the operation. Ooh, so there's very, not much not much to go on here. Very is there? shady, isn't it? Uh, officials who have reviewed the intelligence said they believed the saboteurs were most likely Ukrainian or Russian nationals or some combination of the two. You'll have to explain that to me. Uh, U.S. officials said no American or British nationals were involved. Right. Uh, okay, unless, so let's... Unless they were Ukrainian-American, does that count? Uh, dual nationality, who knows? But let's uh, bring Politico on scre screen then and what they said. So in Nord Stream bombings probe, German investigators see Ukraine leaks, uh, reports say. Uh, so German prosecutors have found traces of evidence indicating that Ukrainians may have been involved in the explosions that blew up the Nord Stream gas pipelines, according to German media reports. So this is this was Desite and uh, uh, ARD and SWR. Uh, so anyway, that that's it. What uh, what so, so they closely coordinated the Desite and New York Times at the exact same time. Both, so there's some coordination going on. Well, this would be the rapid response mechanism where you come up with a narrative and then you share that because you've got a common narrative in different countries and so on, different newspapers and whatnot. Well, I've got my own theory about what's going on, if you want to hear it now or later. Uh, well, we can hear it. Well, hear, after, hear it after Seymour. After, after yeah. Seymour Hersh. But uh, uh, this was uh, the Ukrainian uh, opinion. 
although I enjoy collecting amusing conspiracy theories about the Ukrainian government, I have to say Ukraine had nothing to do with the Baltic Sea mishap and has no information about pro-Ukrainian sabotage groups. What happened to the Nord Stream pipelines? They sank, as they say, in RF itself. Uh, so that's the Russian Federation, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, let's just remind ourselves what uh, uh, subs what uh, Seymour Hirsch said. This was your a couple of your graphics from a couple of weeks ago. Last June, U.S. Navy divers operating under the cover of a widely publicized midsummer NATO exercise known as Baltops uh, 22 planted uh, the remotely triggered explosives that three months later destroyed three of the four Nord Stream pipelines. Uh, and he said the divers were Navy only, not members of American Special Operations. Command, uh, whose covert operations must be reported to Congress, uh, and so on. So, uh, a pretty lame attempt, it seems to me, to, to divert attention away from uh, Hirsch's investigation. It's kind of obvious the New York Times, it's been out a month, right? Hirsch's story's been out a month. New York Times, no, no US mainstream media covers it a month. And all of a sudden, boom, they're all over it because there's a new uh, official conspiracy theory that's come out uh, from the uh, from the depths of the uh, foggy bottom of the U.S. intelligence yes. uh, world. There, I mean, kind of ridiculous on one level. But you know what I think is going on. This also gives the uh, Germans, for instance, uh, a chance to kind of throw Zelensky under the bus and Ukraine under the bus. Imagine how this is being viewed in Kiev. They're like, wow, the whole Western media, I thought we were the darlings. I thought we could do no wrong. They're blaming us for the Nord Stream. I mean, that, that'll kind of lose face for you know some people in Ukraine, in Kiev. So what does that allow? It allows some of the NATO partners like Germany to take a step back, perhaps. Um, and that's kind of a nice, easy out. Maybe that was negotiated between uh, Olaf Scholz and Biden in their meeting just a couple of days ago. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what they talked about and agreed that was going to be the, the course of action. And then another actor can move to the front on that, which would be Poland, mm -hmm. uh, for instance, as we talked about last week. And so th what, what you could have, Mike, is a situation where uh, in Iraq, it was Britain and the United States. It was done outside of NATO. It was done outside of the UN or any international uh, multilateral agreements. Or any. It was a coalition of the willing. So in this case, if the whole NATO issue becomes too sticky in terms of intervention, uh, they could pull back. And then the United States and Poland, for instance, and Britain could go in unilaterally and say, this isn't a NATO action. We're just going into Western Ukraine. Uh, to kind of stabilize the situation and help the refugees or provide some military assistance or whatever. And then that becomes a no-go zone, a no-fly zone. And then if effectively we'll get what they want at the end, which will, you know, for Poland, it'll be a piece of Western Ukraine, right? Right. That's what they want. For the U.S., they want a, per a permanent military footprint in Poland, ideally maybe something in Western Ukraine. And so that would be a takeaway. So, it, but is that is that how it's going to play out? So, is this what the new Nord Stream plot is about? I, I'm not sure, yeah. but it's just a possibility. Yes. Okay. Well, let's uh, move on to sanctions then. And uh, statement issued: uh, Global Advisory on Russian Sanctions Invasion, uh, issued jointly by the Multilateral Repo Task Force. So, this is the. Uh, uh, Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, United Kingdom, United States, European Commission, uh, they launched the Russian elites, proxies and oligarchs uh, task force, which is they claim is a multilateral effort uh, that has used information sharing and coordination to isolate and exert unprecedented pressure on sanctioned Russian individuals and entities in the UK. This is uh, represented by uh, Tom Tugendhat. And of course, he's very excited that they have blocked or frozen more than 48 billion 
pounds worth of Russian assets, putting unprecedented financial pressure on Putin and his cronies. Is that true, though? Uh, because I just want to just going to this is just a throwaway comment, but this was a silly little article in the Daily Mail a couple of days ago. Are sanctions really wrecking life in Russia? Uh, and they've just got a couple of images showing supermarket shelves in the UK uh, versus supermarket shelves in Russia. Uh, and uh, we're so, seeing the same reports, Mike. Yes. This is so happening. again, we've got to ask the question: uh, What are what are Western governments doing other than uh, killing their own uh, I, populations? I think we can make the argument that uh, the Western embargo against Russia has hurt the Western economy more than the Russian economy. Yes. I think we can make that argument. Yeah. So then, what's the point? Yeah. At that at that point, yes. why why do it? Indeed. Uh, okay, uh, just two minutes left, Patrick. So uh, let's talk about uh, green energy first of all. Well, we we we've talked about this whole thing about you know is the whole changeover to EVs in the UK is it viable, um, and what is the state of UK power distribution right now? Where are we getting our energy? And I want to point people to this excellent study here by Christian James. He runs the numbers on this, Mike. And even uh, going here going so far as looking at some scenarios here on the national grid and looking at the power pole on, let's say, electric cars, even in a neighborhood level to a substation level, huge problems. Um, some substations can go down if there's too many people charging their cars overnight. Mm. And this is just with a small fraction of EVs in the UK. And it goes and runs the numbers as well, as we've talked about before, about there's not enough uh, available mineable cobalt on the planet to change over the UK fleet. All of those details are covered in well, this article. So it's a great study. Not only the UK, I mean, forget about the rest of the world. You know, if the, just UK, the UK was just the UK would, would exhaust cobalt supplies. So that's just the beginning of the story. The other part, Mike, is that they we do not have the power generation to uh, power the EV uh, car fleet to charge all those batteries. 100%. So there's going to be rolling blackouts. And then the government's going to lose their biggest source of revenue, Mike, which is fuel tax. Yes. So where are they going to recoup that from? Onto charging cars. Yes. And so there will be a scenario, and this is the great part about this article, it said there'll be a time when the cost of charging the car might be more than what it used to be to fill your diesel tank. It's already getting to that point. So at that point, where is the advantage yeah. for EVs? I don't see any. There isn't any. At all. But, so but it, if your if your intention <laughs> is that people don't drive, then this this is this works. That's right, and that's what that's what it's probably about. That's the long range agenda. So let's uh, let's end then on air quality. Well, we'd like to get our readers and viewers' thoughts on this one from the L.A. Times. Uh, and this was going viral just yesterday here, and uh, so this is the L.A. Times saying on Twitter, "White drivers are polluting the air breathed by L.A.'s people of color." Here, this is an actual article, folks, and uh, yeah, they tweet this out. There's some amusing comments under this as well, so I do encourage people, if you're uh, Twitter inclined, uh, to go visit this post uh, on the LA Times account. If it's still there, they might have removed it uh -huh. because they're absolutely getting thrashed over this. So apparently, pollution is racist, which yes. is that's a new one. Well. Uh, it was 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 Coroni, uh Covey was Coroni was Coroni uh, Mass, racist? massively racist. Yes. Yeah. Covey, so it's Co only it's only reasonable that air quality would be racist too. Yeah. So particulates pollution. coming out of the back of exhaust pipes, massively racist. Right. As well. So I don't know. We're, how are we going to solve that? Problem? We we will leave you with that thought. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes with some extra 
but otherwise, if you're not a UK Column member, we will see you 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Have a great weekend. See you then.